You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix. Today is September 15, 2018, and uh, let's get started and get into the show. All right. So first thing I just want to mention, please visit the website, www.conversationsandmeditations.com. I have a blog post coming out about um, the connections between Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and um, Blade Runner, the movie and its connections to uh, the John Milton book, Paradise Lost. So if you're interested in film and philosophy and kind of how these things intertie, you know, intertwine and how they, um, how stories that came out, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, even, you know, 300 years ago, how those stories are influencing today's art, particularly in films and in uh, other novels. Okay, great. So today's show is going to be all about cognitive dissonance. Uh, I've mentioned it a few times uh, on the show. Uh, I believe I mentioned it last time on the show when I was talking about conspiracy theories and um, particularly when people get challenged on their consp- uh, conspiracy theories and that feeling they get. So, you know, in the field of psychology, cognitive dissonance, you know, is mental discomfort, you know, usually psychological stress experienced by a person who simultaneously holds two or more contradictory beliefs, you know, values or ideas. So this discomfort, you know, triggers a situation in which a, a belief of a person clashes with new evidence, you know, perceived by that person. So when they're confronted with the facts that contradict their personal beliefs, you know, their their their, their values, their ideals, what they hold to, you know, what they hold to be true, people will find a way, you know, to resolve this contradiction in order to reduce the discomfort itself. So, you know, this came up, uh, you know, the, the theory itself, the theory of cognitive dissonance, you know, started almost a half a century ago, and it was by a psychologist named uh, Leon uh, Festinger, and he developed the theory in 1957. And obviously, the theory has stood the test of time and has been around for a long time, and it's essential to understand this for a few different reasons. So I think it's important because this will not only help you understand things that you might not be sure about or things that you are sure about but not might have not looked at the other side. Not only that, this will also improve your, your relationships with other people, including your loved ones, including your significant other. Um, so understanding cognitive dissonance and fighting against it really, really, really will help you, I think, um, be able to have better integration in your life. And what do I mean by integration? You know, when I say integration – I kind of look at it as like a cardinal function of, of our consciousness, human, you know, human consciousness, you know, on all levels of, of our cognitive de- development, really. You know, our brain, you know, ultimately in the beginning, our brain brings in, you know, order in, in the sense, you know, order through our senses, right? And by integrating the sense data into precepts and, you know, this integration obviously is performed automatically. We don't, you know, it doesn't require you know, active effort, but, you know, effort is being done. But, you know, the next step of integration is putting these precepts into concepts. As we learn to speak, you know, therefore, the cognitive development consists in integrating concepts into a wider and even wider concepts, expanding the range of, of our minds. You know, this this is where, this is how we take stuff in and then integrate it into our understanding of the universe, integrate it into our understanding of our lives integrated into our understanding of our emotions and how should, how we should react and not react towards certain things. So, you know, cognitive dissonance theory is, is based on three fundamental assumptions ultimately. So the first one is that humans are sensitive to inconsistencies between actions and belief. 
So according to the theory, we all recognize at some level when we are acting in a way that is inconsistent with our beliefs, you know, our opinions, our values, our attitudes, what we hold to be true and you know, what we hold to value. So in effect, there's, there's a built-in alarm that goes off when we notice an inconsistency of this type. Whether we like it or not, you know, so it's not something we can necessarily control when we when we when we take this, you know, when there is an inconsistency between our actions and our beliefs, that feeling we get, that isn't something that we can learn to turn off or learn to turn on. That just happens automatically. You know, for example, uh, let's say if you have a belief that it's wrong to cheat, yet you find yourself cheating on, on a test and you will notice, you know, notice this and be affected by this inconsistency. Right. If you if you have a belief that, um, you know, smoking causes cancer and smoking can kill you ultimately and then you continue to smoke. Um, and this is coming from a former smoker here. So trust me, I understand the struggle. Um, but that inconsistency that you get when you think about it, that's cognitive dissonance. That's it's the inconsistency, inconsistency, excuse me, inconsistency between beliefs and actions. So the recognition of the, and, you know, the second assumption as I mentioned, there's three, is that the recognition of this inconsistency will cause dissonance, right? And this will motivate an individual to resolve this dissonance. And there's multiple ways to resolve the dissonance, but uh, here we go. So once you, you, know, you recognize that you have had one of your principles violated or there's an inconsistency in your principles and your, in your actions and beliefs, you know, according to the theory, you won't just say, ah, well, whatever, it's okay. You, know, you will feel some sort of mental pain you know, and uh, about it, you're going to definitely feel it. And the degree of the dissonance, of course, will vary with the importance of the actual belief or attitude or the principle or any or whatever, you know. Uh, so, so the thing is, like, the degree of the dissonance, like I said, does vary on the importance you put on the thing that you're having inconsistency with between the between your behavior and the belief, for instance. You know, in any case, according to the theory, the greater the dissonance, the more you'll be motivated to resolve it. You know, and third, you know, um, dissonance will be resolved in three ways. You know, and you know, the first thing is change of beliefs. Second, second thing is change of, of actions. And uh, third thing is change uh, the perception of actions, right? So to get to the first one, you know, the change of beliefs, you know, perhaps the simplest way for people to solve the dissonance in their lives, you know, between the action, between their actions and beliefs is to simply change your belief, right? You could, of course, decide, you know, uh, just because that, just because cheating is cheating, whatever, you know, it's okay, whatever. So that would take care of the dissonance there. However, like that belief is an important and fundamental. So, in your life, let's say, and that's why it's causing you this pain. So it's very unlikely that you might change a belief on something like that. You know, moreover, you know, our basic belief and attitudes are pretty stable throughout our lives. And, and people just don't go around changing basic beliefs and, and their principles and their opinions all the time. Actually, we don't. And primarily because of our cognitive biases. And I, we're talking, you know, I, I want to, you know, focus this on, on, you know, cognitive dissonance. But at the end of this, I really do want to bring it around and tie it to cognitive bias. You know, but the thing is, like, people don't really change that much. You know, they were, they when we rely a lot on our view of the world in predicting, you know, it's a predicting uh, algorithm. You know, we, we have a worldview. And when we have a worldview, it helps predict events and organize our thoughts in such a way that we do not feel this cognitive dissonance, do not feel fear or any of these other negative emotions at that particular time, right? So the simplest form of resolving this dissonance is is probably not the most common, you know, the changing of beliefs. So the change of actions, you know, is a second type of way to, you know, to, to solve the dissonance. We would make sure that you never do the action again. You know, the guilt and anxiety uh, can motivate it can be great motivators for changing behavior, um, especially if you did something wrong and, and you're actually guilty and there's something necessary to be, you know, you necessarily should be anxious about your behavior. So, yeah, those those negative emotions, don't think that negative emotions are bad all the time. I mean, when you do something bad and you have a negative emotion, that's your conscious, that's the cognitive dissonance coming in your life and telling you, hey, your beliefs did not, you know, fall in line with your, you know, your your actions. Maybe you should never do that again. Maybe you should your, your your behavior should change. So 
having those feelings of guilt and anxiety can be great motivators. So don't don't uh, don't be alarmed by you know those feelings in times like this. So you may say to yourself that you you never want to cheat on the test again, or you never want to you know smoke again or whatever, and this may help you resolve in the dissonance, but like the the conditioning, you know, the guilt and anxiety can often be not the best way of learning because it, it, it makes you fear these things, right? You're afraid now and that's not a good place to be. It's a, it's a good place to like motivate you to, for changing behavior, but it's not a good foundation. You know, it's it's a catalyst, yeah, but it's not the foundation of why you don't do something. Or why you change your beliefs or change your actions, particularly change your actions. So, but you also may really benefit in some way from the action that's inconsistent with your beliefs. So, it depends on how is it actually affecting you, and what externalities your beliefs and your actions at that particular moment. How are they affecting you know the outside world as well as yourself? I mean, primarily yourself. Um, but then the third way is to you know change the perception of action. So a more complex method of the resolution is to change the way you view, you perceive your action. You know, you would kind of – it's not necessarily rationalizing but it almost is – you know, it almost is in a way type of rationalizing your actions. So you might decide that the test you cheated on was not a good – not a, you know, not a really important class and I didn't care about it. So you, you didn't really need to, you know, think about it anyways. Or that you may say to yourself that everyone else does it. So why not me? So in other ways, you know, if you reflect on the series of, of just mental gymnastics for a moment, you'll probably recognize why cognitiveness has become so popular. It's if you're like, you know, if you notice, you know, such, uh, you know, rationalizations of behavior, you know, people do this all the time. If you notice that people do this all the time, it's not, it's not very hard to see it in yourself, right? So you have an inconsistency with your action and belief, Right. That creates dissonance. It goes up. So you either have to change your actions, change your beliefs, or change the action, you know, change the perception of your actions. And then your dissonance goes down. So obviously there's there's a lot of ways to deal with dissonance. But, you know, I think integrating a lot of those different things in a way can be beneficial. So there has been um, tremendous, tremendous amounts of research done on cognitive dissonance since 59. And uh, in neuroscience, actually, there's been you know actual visualizations when people are experiencing cognitive dissonance that a certain part of their brain lights up, you know, and it's a psychological conflict going on, and it shows exactly where in the brain that they're you know that you know that rationalization or that that feeling of like oh wow I'm experiencing this, you know, goes on and it triggers some type of uh, emotion. So again, it's this is. This is um, this people have looked at this as an evolutionary force, possibly like this was something that was developed through evolution. You know, that might be um, it might be there to help us make choices between options. And but again, regardless of, of the history of it and whatever, it's important to understand how and why this happens and how and why we deal with this stuff. You, you're probably hearing me talk about this and you're like, well, yeah. Anytime I've I've been, you know, hit with something, it's given it's given me this, you know, feeling, right? About some you know, hit with a different, you know, information and the information didn't fall within my worldview and boom, my worldview is now in the air. I'm anxious, I'm, you know, nervous because I don't know what to think about this. So I have two ways. I could either change it, you know, change the way I look at it, change my beliefs or change my actions. And uh, but again, that's that's what the theory is based on. Like I said, humans are sensitive. First thing, you know, first, you know, three assumptions about cognitive dissonance. Humans are sensitive to inconsistencies between actions and beliefs. So they're very sensitive to it. That's number one. Number two, recognition of the inconsistency will cause dissonance and will motivate an individual to resolve the dissonance. And three, you know, dissonance will be resolved in one of the way, three ways I mentioned, by either changing beliefs, changing your actions, and changing your perception of the actions. So, you know, this is this is not something that we can look at and just say, you know what, it's whatever. I'm just going to forget it and that's it. And the thing is like this is going to 
this is going to cause a lot of stress for a lot of people. And like I said, this does cause this, this does cause you know emotions such as guilt and anxiety to rise up. So what's what's important about guilt and anxiety is that we have to take these negative emotions and turn them on their head and use them towards our you know our growth, our personal growth, our betterment. So you know, um, health psychologist Kelly. Uh, McGinnell uh, discusses a three-step process of shifting your mindset when anxiety arises. So the first thing is acknowledge stress when you experience it. Welcome the stress by recognizing that it's a response to something you care about, right? And then make use of that energy and the energy the stress gives you instead of wasting the energy by trying to manage your stress. So I think that's essential to under you know that's that's essential to understanding anxiety and stress in general, but it's also essential to understanding cognitive dissonance and how to deal with it. You know, and how this will affect your emotions. This will make you feel a certain way about a thing. So it's it's also important to understand that, you know, we hold many things as ourselves. You know, we hold assumptions, you know, ideas uh, about ourselves and about the world. And, you know, a lot of the times these things clash, Right. And the resulting state is is a state of tension, you know, like as we talked about, cognitive dissonance. But the elimination is 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 the hardest part, right? It it is the hardest part, and dissonance occurs most often in situations where an individual must choose between two incompatible beliefs. That's hard. It's hard. It's you know interactions, right? But it's hard to to look at you know a part of yourself. And then just be like, ah, whatever. It's it's not important, you know. Uh, it's okay if I have inconsistencies in what I say, what I believe, because the thing is, like, most people don't see that as a fatal flaw, but ultimately, it's a fatal flaw not only in your in your you know integration of of you know your your mind and your body and you know your uh, ability to understand these things. When I say mind, I mean your consciousness. Um, so. Like I said, this stuff does affect us. But like I, I also said, it doesn't only affect us. It affects our friendships. It affects our understanding, you know, between each other, you know, and, and particularly in intimate, intimate relationships, you know. For instance, you know, let's say I'm a loving and compassionate person, yet I'm not loving and compassionate to you at this moment, right? <laughs> that's you know, that's very common in relationships, right? And the way we resolve uh, you know, cognizance helps determine health and well-being ultimately. And the following choices gives you the best chance of achieving a solid and authentic sense of self while improving your relationship. So like I, like I talked about in a couple shows ago, you know, this is also heavily tied to self-esteem. And don't think that just because you think you have a healthy self-esteem, you don't or won't experience or, or, or never will experience cognitive dissonance in your life. That's – those things are – Mutually exclusive, but at, this, but at the same time, there is a correlation in terms of if you have low self-esteem, the inconsistencies in your life, the, you know, the less you would integrate all these things would more likely be uh, true than not true. So the way, to, the way to handle this in a relationship, so for instance, like I said, I'm a loving and compassionate person, yet I'm not loving and compassionate to you at this moment. You know, the way to answer that is, okay, I must try harder to understand your point of view and your perspective and sympathize with any discomfort or pain, or, you know, or pain that underlies any of that. You know, there's a couple other ways to do it. You know, and th- this is this is obviously a failure uh, right here, this, this idea right here. So another way to handle it, right, is like I'm a loving, compassionate person, yet I'm not loving and compassionate to you at this moment. Therefore, something's wrong with you. <laughs> you know, that's not, you know, or you're just stupid or you're just selfish or you don't like me or you're uh, um, abusive or any of these things, you know, you could see and you could understand how this would affect a relationship. How would this affect not only, you know, friends and family, but people you love the most, you know, a significant other. So we have to use cognitive dissonance to improve ourselves. But also improve our relationships. So you know, it's it's easy to avoid the trap. You know, instead of asking, you know, what's wrong to your partner, you could ask, uh, 
you know, why is it what's what's making it hard for us to communicate, you know, or what's making it hard to be. Why is it making it hard? Why is it hard for me to be compassionate right now? And, you know, the way the way we have to look at this is that resolving cognitive dissonance in this way makes you less likely to seem critical or attacking, which makes it difficult for your partner to be defensive. So when you say, I want to be more compassionate to you, I know that, you know, and you just honestly admit that, you know, your faults and everything like this, and you understand where your, you know, your cognitive um, biases are. And you can, if you can put those into, into words, you can really get a lot out of it. And primarily, you know, the alternative choice to, to working these things out. And, you know, is if you if you have inconsistencies and especially about the way you treat others, right? Particularly about the way you, you treat others. This is ultimately when you have that inconsistency, it, it it is it is gnawing at and destroying your self-image. Because you have this idea of who you are. Oh, I'm nice, I'm this, I'm that. But you're not. And you don't treat the people you care about most the best way. Or the way they should be treated. They deserve to be treated. And you see that and you figure out like, wow, okay, well, maybe maybe my self-image isn't, isn't as rosy as I thought it was. Maybe I have more issues than I thought I do. Maybe I'm blaming everybody else for problems and not, you know, looking at myself first. So this can be a big wake-up call. And the thing about it is the way you handle this, and especially in a relationship, can make or break the relationship. Um, if you have a vision of yourself – and if the vision is, you know, congruent and is well integrated, then there's no reason that you would have issues of self-image. But again, we all have moments where our self-image and what we put out in reality are not, you know, congruent and don't make sense or not even close to one another. So I think a big part of this is, you know, it's something that will help us build a better self-image and along with the sentence completion and all this stuff we talked about and, you know, the, the, six, uh, the six pillars of self-esteem, all this stuff will help guide you and help put you on a better path towards, you know, bettering your character. And I can tell you from my own personal experience that it's worked for me, you know, doing these things and doing these exercises and, um, you know, looking at myself first, particularly then looking at others and stop playing the blame game and, you know, see first, you know, see what's in my control, what's not in my control. And if I mess something up and it was the intent, you know, my, it was me who did it, you know, regardless of my intentions, obviously intentions matter. Intentions are, are key. But, you know, regardless the way the person felt, the outcome, the consequences, I, you're going to have to fix that. I'm going to have to fix that, right? So we have to look at ourselves to figure out why we have this, you know, discomfort about our self-image and how we can figure it out. Because again, cognitive dissonance doesn't only doesn't always come to the point of view of like, you know, for instance, I've said on this show before that I believe that capitalism has been the greatest tool in the 20th century to lift people out of poverty. I have a bunch of data to show for it, you know, whatever. But the thing is, if somebody feels a certain way after I say that, notice that's cognitive dissonance, right? If I say that, you know, anxiety and depression are pervasive and they're in a lot of people's lives and it's increased over, you know, multitude of numbers and you feel a certain way, it's probably because you've been feeling you've been thinking about that stuff too and you haven't, you know, fully integrated that within your worldview. Or maybe you just maybe you are you know suffering from some type of anxiety and depression and you just haven't admitted it to yourself. You know, and haven't you know gotten help or seeked help. So we, you know, Obviously, like I realize a lot of the stuff I say on the show could cause people to have cognitive dissonance regardless of that, you know, regardless of that. When the anxiety rises, like um, Dr. McGoinal said, you know, you have to acknowledge the stress when you experience it. You got to welcome the stress by recognizing that it's a response to something you care about. And then you got to make use of the energy the stress gives you instead of wasting the energy, you know, you're, you're, instead of wasting energy trying to manage the stress. Really. It's not going to work out that way. And something we, we have to look at, you know, a little deeper and kind of break down a little further is, 
you know, we take things in, everybody takes, so we all have different movies going on in our heads, right? There's objective reality out there and we can observe it and we can, we can know it, we can find it. Um, but a lot of us, I would say pretty much all of us, put this layer of a subjective reality around what's really going on. And this layer, you know, your ego is in there, right? Your, your, I would say your false sense of, sense of self-esteem is there and your false sense of self is there. I would say all these things and again, these things were manifested in my, in my being not too long ago. So from experience, I would say that you know this, this outer layer to the objective reality is what causes a lot of people to have these inconsistencies, to have the cognitive dissonance. So we have to see, okay, when, when I hear something or, or hear data or get some, some information that makes me feel a certain way, regardless of the way it makes you feel, if it's science, it's science. Yeah, you know, the, the, the reality of climate change is, is, is sad and it's horrifying. But I'm not going to sit there and feel, you know, just because I feel a certain way about it, you know, and it makes me feel a certain way, I'm just not going to, you know, not take it in and understand it. Or for instance, you know, people make uh, claims about um, their own personal well-being, but at the same time, you see them go and do things that are, you know, not helping them out particularly in their well-being. And you're, you're just watching the – and the thing is like as you see other as – you, as you study yourself more and get to understand yourself more, you will see the inconsistencies in your actions and beliefs way more than you ever thought you would. But also you will see it in other people, right? Um, and you will see – you will see certain things um, and you'll see certain, you know, body language and, and, and cadences when people talk – that are pretty much a good way to understand you know, cognitive dissonance. So for instance, um, here's a list of – here's just kind of a quick list and quick understanding of some of the, the moments where you could feel the cognitive dissonance coming in. So not in all – and this is again, not in all cases, but this is a good way to understand it in yourself you know, and, and, and kind of understand where you're going through. So if you are – in conversation with somebody and it's, you know, it's heated and everything. And this can particularly be detected, especially when you're in the same room with the other person. And when a person gives a, a verbal, you know, comeback or, or something, um, or they give you a go with it with some facts or whatever, they just hit you with some, with some information. And let's say you have a speechless moment. Now, there's two there's two ways to have a speechless moment. There's a way to where you are, you know, just having this this again the the, the discomfort of cognitive dissonance happening, and you're just trying to like recalibrate your brain real quick for sure. But again, there's times where you have to like, and again, I, I always say this: when you, it's okay to be speechless in some moments because it, you have to, you should be careful about what you say, right? And it's a good idea to maybe think about what you're going to say. So again, if you aren't sure about something, just tell the person I need to think about this a little more and go through it. But again, if you are hesitating and stopping because you notice that discomfort, you need to address it and not primarily not with the other person but primarily within yourself. Um, so then another type of, of idea is like um, – you know, for instance, like I said about uh, – I talked about, you know, I said capitalism is the best system for for the poor and it's helped the poor in the 20th century. If somebody's response to that is like, who is this, you know, neoliberal, um, conservative, blah, 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 whatever, you know, uh, they'll just throw names at you in a way to like not even not even have you pay attention to what I'm talking about. So they'll, they'll just because I said the word capitals and I said it, it helps the poor, it has helped the poor the most in the 20th century, people will forget – will not even address that and just go towards you know, all the assumptions people have about capitalism and what's been going on since, since you know, the Industrial Revolution. So they'll, they'll put on a bunch of different things there 
that's I mean, obviously, that's a good way to to spot it, right? And, and if you do that, you know, for instance, if somebody hits me with something and it contradicts something I believe, so somebody came in with some data that showed that um, uh, socialism worked out much better than capitalism and helped the poor better. If somebody came with some data that said that, and I would have to look at it, and if I go, well, you know, everybody knows that socialism, blah blah blah, leads to this and leads to that, and people and you know, bread lines, and you know, if I just go there and not address the data, you know, I would have to look into myself and see why didn't I just look at the data first, then, you know, make sure that the data was sound. If it wasn't sound, then I could make that statement. But usually people will just jump to their bias, right? And because that's what that's what that's what's comfortable. That's what they know. And they'll spread it and they'll go ahead and they'll try to like, you know, knock the other person down. So there will usually and that person will offer no data. They're not going to reason you know, to back up the emotion, you know, at most they will offer a link, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's it. A link, especially a link to a journalist, not necessarily a link to a journal. So that's that's very important. And again, like I mentioned, you, another way you can understand is if you're going through a talk and there's some cognitive distance between this talk and boom, you start doing, you know, start throwing personal attacks Without reason, really, and it's among you know this, it's among the, the most you know important way to understand this. When you do that, that means that is like the, in, the quintessential moment to when you know you're experiencing cognitive dissonance in conversation. It means a person that's being attacked has been so persuasive that it's shaking somebody else's self-image. Honestly, that's what it is. So if you ever start personally attacking somebody for no reason, and it, it has nothing to do. With um, you know, with with what I, what I said, then obviously at that point you can figure out what's going on and that their self image is being questioned. So, for instance, if somebody says like, "Oh, my policies will help stimulate the economy," and the data has shown that uh, free markets better and free trade is good, and you know tariffs are bad, blah blah blah. Right? Let's say I said that, and let's say somebody came and said, uh, "You're an a hole. You know, you're terrible. You're stupid." And at that point, it shows that, you know, the foundations of who they think they are and what they think they believe are being shattered because somebody else is providing a different point of view. And you'll experience this in your life, right? But again, there's also false positives to this, you know? There's a lot of people out there who will say exactly what I said, but they might be an a-hole, <laughs> you know? They might be uh, a terrible person. So it just – that's the way it works. Um, again, it's important – to, to look into um, a lot of these different things. You know, sometimes you have too many explanations for something. And you see often, you know, wide, wide variety of explanations for a particular observation. It probably means that no one has any idea what, what the real reason is. And they're just, you know, looking looking at it through their own prisms. You know, and once the once the cognitive dissonance sets in, people will imagine different reasons and convince themselves that they're real, right? So again, this is, again, something we talked about last, something I talked about last time with, with conspiracy theories. There's so, you know, there a lot of, there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of whatever, problems, and people will want to go and explain it. And they'll create so many different explanations that, you know, when the, obviously the cognitive, the cognitive dissonance comes in and then they will... People will then imagine reasons and then convince themselves of these reasons that this is why X thing is this way and that way. Um, another way to kind of understand that, you know, is I'm trying to think. The laugh, right? The, the, the there's no there's no joke going on. There's there's nothing happening. You just say something and somebody laughs. That's a great way or you or somebody says something and let's say it's not a comical phrase. Like it, no, There's nothing comical about it. Let's say the statement I make is a very serious and very well thought out statement. Let's say somebody laughs. That's usually a really good sign that they're experiencing cognitive dissonance. A very good sign. Um, and again – these are not. This is not just me talking about this. These are. These are. I'm gonna obviously post this in the show notes. But these are um, documented things by psychologists and other experts that talk about cognitive dissonance. Um, again, we we have to understand that we do show there there is an an external 
um, external showing of how we experience cognitive dissonance. And again, that's just a, a minor list of what we could be experiencing and the way we react in public and the way we react. So, you know, all in all, it's important to understand that we do have this issue and this issue stems to all of us and that all human beings deal with it. So it's not just these people over here or those people over here or that individual there or that individual here. No, no, no. It's all of us. All of humanity suffers from this. All of humanity will go through this. It's it's on us though to make the choice to evaluate what's causing us to feel a certain way and deal with it properly and deal with it not in a fashion to excuse our bad behavior or not in a fashion that will, you know, um, just, you know, excuse our beliefs. That's not what I'm talking about. You need you need an integration between this. You need to integrate your beliefs and your actions. And the only way to do that is to either change a belief or change an action. And you have to see what will add up and what will what will be the best thing for you, right? Um, I, for a long time, believed that, you know, believed, like I said, last show, I believed in conspiracy theories. And when new evidence and new data came into me and came into my life and, you know, appeared to me, I had a choice. Either I could say this is all uh, propaganda, this is all shills, and I could have said that. But, you know, I chose to look at the data and I chose to change my beliefs and therefore, you know, my actions changed as well. So um, we, we have to figure out how we can integrate, you know, our beliefs and actions better. And we have to, you know, also make sure that when we're when we're taking in the sensory data from the world and we're taking in our experiences and everything, we have to make sure that we're not looking at it through a through a lens that isn't accurate. And we talked and I talked about, you know, the the objective reality and how we, we we superimpose our subjective reality upon it. And that's that's a problem because it doesn't give you the honest truth. It doesn't give you the truth. So, again, I mentioned cognitive biases, and we all have these, and they all exist within our within our understanding. But I think it's essential to to go over them and 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 to see where this, how this you know addresses um, cognitive dissonance, and how this can maybe make you understand where I'm coming from in a better way. So, biases help us solve problems, right? Um, Ultimately, they're, they're, they're mental tools that we use to help us get help us get to the end of the finish line in a complex equation or a complex um, situation. So let's say the first problem you have is you have too much information. There's just too much information in the world. We have no choices but to filter almost all of it out, right? So our brains our brains will use you know, a few tricks to pick out bits of information that are most likely to be useful in some way. So we will notice things that are already primed in our memory or repeated often. So for instance, I can, I can put, put out quotes and put out uh, stats on economics all day long. And the reason for that is because this has been in my brain and been in my head for a while and it's, it's, it's still there and it's not going to go away for a while. Um, another type of thing in relation to too much information is that, you know, bizarre, funny or visually striking things stick out in a more non-bizarre and funny way. You know, our brains tend to boost the importance of things that are unusual or surprising. You know, ultimately, we tend to skip over information that seems ordinary or expected, even though that that, that information might seem um, very important. Um, another thing is we notice when something has changed. And we'll generally tend to weigh the significance of the new value by the direction, uh, by the direction of the change, uh, whether it's positive or negative. And uh, we have to evaluate, re or excuse me, reevaluate the, the the new value as has already been presented alone. Also applies when we compare two similar things, right? So we tend to notice again. We tend to notice things when they change versus when things are you know staying the same. Um. Again, we're drawn to details that confirm our own existing beliefs. And this is essential to understanding cognitive dissonance. You know, we tend and we also tend to ignore details that contradict with our own beliefs. So something you have to understand, you know, the confirmation bias, the congruence bias, these are 
particular biases, and there's a ton of them, and I'll put up the uh, the um, cognitive bias codex, which was developed in 2016, to show pretty much all the cognitive biases that we have as humans. These are just some of the basic basic ones and basic understandings of it. They're multi-layered, and there's so many different things that we can you know get from there. But to end on problem one, which is too much information, you know, we we notice flaws in others more easily than flaws in ourselves. You know, I talked about this with with uh, with cognitive dissonance and respect to our relationships with our significant others. If we have a self-image of ourselves that we are a certain way, I'm good, I'm nice, and this and blah blah blah, and then you don't act that way, then automatically you're going to look at the flaws of the other person you're not acting nice to, rather than looking at your into yourself and looking at your own flaws. So that's obviously a big problem, and that's called a blind spot bias, right? Um, the second problem that, you know, cognitive biases try to, you know, help us with, at least the way our brain works, is um, there's not enough meaning. So in this case, you know, the world is very confusing and we end up only seeing a tiny bit of it. But we need to make some sense of it in order to survive and to thrive in the world. So once the reduced stream of information comes in, we can connect the dots, you know, uh, dot, you know, uh, dot the I's, cross the T's, fill in the gaps with stuff we already think we know, and update our mental information and update the mental models of our world and our worldview. So we find stories and patterns in sparse data. Um, again, this happens to a lot of people, particularly people that look into conspiracy theories. They'll find stories, they'll find patterns in, in ways that, you know, might not be in in line with what, what's really going on since we only get the tiny piece of information of the world you, we can't get all the information we only get a tight tiny pieces of information as they goes on you know we, we also filter out almost everything else we never have you know the ability or the blessing of having the full story on hand at all time you know this is how our brain reconstructs the world to feel complete you know inside our bodies um we, f- we fill in characteristics from stereotypes, generalities, and prior histories whenever there's new specific instances or gaps in fr- or information. So this actually will lead to discrimination, um, this particular bias. And this is a group you know, attribution error um, or stereotyping otherwise as, as it's known. So when we have a partial information about a specific thing that belongs to a group of things, you know, we're pretty familiar with that, you know. Pretty familiar with, you know, our brain has no problem filling in the gaps and understanding the best guesses. Um, but for instance, let's say that a person was, uh, let's say a person was walking down the street one day and they got mugged by a person of Syrian heritage, like myself. Now, let's say they walk around the rest of their lives fearing that, you know, fearing Assyrian people because of their one experience with an Assyrian person who happened to be a criminal. So this is this is what happens when you use prior histories and generalities and stereotypes to fill in the blanks about a specific group or a set of people. And this is like this is like the beginnings of discrimination and this will ultimately lead to like racism and homophobia and a bunch of other um disgusting uh behaviors that people have and opinions that people have. You know, and another thing that kind of connects to not having enough meaning is, you know, you know we imagine things uh, and people we are familiar with or fond of as better than things that – better than people we're not fond of or not familiar with. So, you know, this is obviously a very, very um, important thing to understand. This is called an in-group bias. So you belong to a certain in-group. And you trust the people in your in-group and you respect your people in your in-group. Your, in your and let's say you meet somebody else from an out-group and then from there, you don't really trust them. You don't really understand them. You don't have that much in common. So you you tend to, uh, you know, kind of filter them out. Again, this is this could also lead to uh, racism and, and bigotry. Um, but again, not all the time. It's, it's, it's multi-layered and that's what, we, what I'm trying to – you know, portray in this. Um, you know, we simplify probabilities and numbers to make them easier to to think about, right? So, you know, like Murphy's law. That's a, that's a very common uh, type of bias that people have. Um, but our subconscious mind is you know terrible at math, 
really. It's horrible and generally gets all t- types of things wrong. And um, the likelihood of something happening if the data, you know, likelihood of understanding something if the data is not there is very low. And again, this goes to something like I talked about, like Murphy's Law or zero-sum bias that um, – and that's a that's a very very important one. And the zero sum bias actually is, uh, I think, is actually destroying a lot of people's um, ability to find confidence in their in their lives. So it's called, otherwise known as zero sum thinking, and this is a form of uh, cognitive bias. You know, it describes when an individual thinks that one situation is a zero sum game where one person's gain would be at another one's loss. So again looking at the world as a zero sum game versus a positive sum game that there isn't just a a pie that has already been set and that's it with positive sum game you believe that there's a pie but as more people get involved in the world the pie keeps growing so uh, and more people are lifted out of poverty and are able to you know create businesses and create you know different uh i mean honestly when you look at for instance i, I talked about the economy of africa um, the continent of Africa and the countries within it, and there's a lot, a lot of beautiful, beautiful data coming out showing that you know the next economic revolution, the next economic jump in the world, you know it happened in the 20th century. You know, one point uh, I think it was 1.2 or 1.3 billion people were lifted out of poverty, according to the United Nations, and primarily because of liberalization of people's governments and liberalization of people's e- economics, uh, particularly. So at that time, India, uh, India now, and China, uh, they they have you know jumped up and reduced the amount of people living in poverty, and they've reduced the amount of uh, people suffering ultimately. But if you did have a zero sum bias, you would never look at this information, right? If you had a zero sum bias, you would never want to figure out or learn how and why the world is getting better. Because your bias is centered towards things are zero sum. So, you know, we also think that we know what others are thinking. And this is, this is a, uh, a really, really bad thing, a really bad bias that tends to get us in trouble a lot. So this is when you're talking. So let's say you're talking with somebody and then they say, so what you really are thinking is that's a good, that's a good way to understand that the person is, uh, you know, mind reading you. And, you know, in some cases, it means we assume what other people know because of our perceived biases on the other things. You know, we, we've already made – we already have a stereotype of this person and uh, of all this stuff. So people will automatically go in to say that, oh, I know exactly what they're thinking. And then they'll say the thing to you and you're like, no, that's not what I'm thinking. And you're like – they're like, oh, OK. And then they realize that, you know, maybe they're, you know, going a little overboard and we're uh, – trying to do something that isn't really fair. So, but the mind reading stuff, this happens with friends, it happens with uh, parent-child relationships, it happens with significant others. It's something that, you know, people tend to do and people will do this, especially with people they know the best. (laughs) Um, You won't see people mind reading others that they are not really familiar with or pretending to mind read. Um, But you'll see this happen particularly within relationships where another person will um, do something, and another, and the other, you know, the other uh, individual in the relationship will then make an assumption on the person's intentions. So that assumption will then they think, oh, the person acted this way because their intentions were blah 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 blah, versus just asking them what were your intentions. So people will will do this continuously, and it just continues to get us in trouble. You know, and the third problem is uh, that 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 cognitive biases fix are the. Um, Need to act fast problem. So we're, we're constrained by time and information and we can't learn everything, right? But we can't let that also paralyze us and put us in a position that we just can't move. So without, without the ability to act you know, in, a, in, a, in an expedient, fast um, way in the face of you know, uncertainty, in the face of um, ignorance, you know, we surely would have not survived as a species a long time ago. But we, we are here right now. So every piece of new information that we get, we need to do our best to assess our ability to affect the situation, you know, then apply it to our, you know, our, our decisions that we're going to be making and then stimulate the future predictions to what might happen next. So as you can see, this is, a, this is kind of an understanding of how 
civilization grew and how we grew as a, as a species. But again, these things are still within us. So for instance, in order to act, we need to be confident in our ability to make an impact and feel like we're, what we're doing is important. So sometimes it can be seen as an optimism bias, like you're too optimistic or you're overconfident or you're egocentric or you have a third person effect or other, there's another thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this is my favorite. Uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive biases in which people of a low ability have an illusion, you know, kind of like illusion that they're superior and they mistakenly assess their cognitive ability greater than it actually is. So this is when somebody doesn't really have a lot of understanding about a lot of topics but then will go ahead and then claim to be the moral paragon and know everything. You know, and that's why when I sit here and I tell you talk to you guys, I say, "Well, look, this is what I think about it." But I could be wrong about a lot of this stuff. I mean, obviously the science that I mentioned today is settled and that's not me coming up with stuff, but my interpretations on a lot of this stuff, that's all up for debate, right? I could be totally wrong on a lot of my interpretation on this stuff. But the important thing is not, you know, falling into this belief that just because you know some stats and just because you know this and that means that you're smarter than, you know, a climate scientist <laughs> or or somebody like that. So, you know, another thing, in order to stay focused in our lives, you know, we favor the immediate relatable thing in front of us over the delayed and distant. You know, we, we want the gratification right now. We don't want it three years from now. That's why investing for a lot of people is very grinding work because you just have to wait there and look at the stock market or look at whatever and watch it grow versus being you know, a more active uh, participant. So we value stuff in a more present way than in the future, right? And then this relates more to the stories of specific individuals and you know, groups. So I'm, I'm surprised there isn't more biases found underneath this one that they talked about because it, it seems that there would be a lot more. Because um, it, it just makes sense that there's a lot of things in the world that you could relate to, you know, relate to your experience. You know, you see something, you want the instant gratification, you don't want to wait. So um, that's that. But you know, in order to get anything anything done, we're motivated to complete things that we've already invested our time and energy in. You know, that's another type of um, bias. You know, in order to avoid mistakes, we're we're motivated to perceive our autonomy. You know, and 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 status in a group, you know, our individuality in group, and avoid the avoid the decisions made by groups, avoid the status quo, so to speak. You know, we favor options that appear to appear simpler, have more, you know, complete information over the more complex, ambiguous options. So we 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 look for simplicity. We look for an information bias. You know, a belief bias. Something that will – so for instance, like a conspiracy theory. Those are perfect because it takes a complex, hard-to-understand world and puts a nice cookie-cutter explanation for the whole thing. So that's, that's, a, that's a specific type of bias that we do and it's, this is all humans. It's not just some humans. All humans have these biases. Um, these are mental tricks that our brain plays. Um, but the, the last problem I want to talk about today is you know – Cognitive biases also solve the problem of what should we remember. There's so much information in the world, so much you know, so much to take in. We can only afford to keep the amount of information that is most likely to help us in the future, not only the present but primarily the future. And we need to make a constant you know, trade-offs between what is and what isn't important, what should I understand and what shouldn't I spend my time on. So if we prefer, you know, prefer generalizations over specifics because they take up less space, that's why people love that stuff. When there are a lot of irreducible details, we pick you know a few standard items and then throw the rest away. Um, we say you know that's uh, you know that was another thing that was talked about in a recent study on Medicare for All from the Mercatus Institute, you know where people just took some data, threw that out there, and then threw the rest of the data away. It's this is this is this is a bias that we tend to do. So we edit and reinforce some memories after the fact. That's something we all do. And, you know, memories can become stronger, but the thing is, like, sometimes memories aren't very accurate. You know, we also discard specific um, specifics to form for generalities. So we do this out of a necessity, but more important, the implicit association, stereotypes, and prejudices that result in some of the most bad consequences that come out from our biases. So obviously, you could see that having this, you know, discarding the specifics for generalities could lead to horrible biases could lead to horrible effects. You know, we reduce events and li and lists to their key elements, so we don't really go into full detail. 
and we store you know memories differently based on how they were experienced. So if a memory was experienced in a good way, in a positive way, we tend to categorize that and remember it, you know, better or worse, you know, depending on the type of person. But you put that there. If you experienced a memory in a negative way, a lot of you know, a lot of people tend to you know bottle it up or not think about it. So this is also another cognitive bias that we tend to do as human beings. So why is this important? Why should you care about what I've talked about for the last hour? Well, if you care about yourself, if you care about your self-image, if you care about your self-esteem, if you love people and you want to be honest with them and you don't want to necessarily you know, have this image of yourself that you think is true but everybody else doesn't agree with, so you need to – so the reason this is so important is because we need to actively – Make sure that we're being the best versions of ourselves every single day. And the only way to do that is to fix the inconsistencies in our lives and to better integrate them within our lives. So if we have problems, if we have issues, we need to deal with them. If people don't understand you know, where we're coming from, maybe we should look into ourselves and figure out why am I not communicating this the best way. And again, if people come to us and present data, present information about our beliefs, about our actions – we shouldn't be sitting here and just getting all angry and then you know, saying, screw you. No, no, no. If somebody has an issue with, with my actions or my behavior, I always tell my friends, I always tell people, look, if there's, if there's an issue in my behavior or my personality or my actions, please let me know so I can make the necessary adjustments. That's just part of being you know, uh, an adult, I would say. I guess. I mean, I don't know. But I would say that you know, being able to say, look, I'm not perfect. I have issues and I have biases like everybody else. And it's important that the people closest to me tell me or check me when I don't do the right thing or check me when I have some of these inconsistencies. So I think it's – but the thing is like we have to be that for other people too. So the people we love, the people we care about, we have to be their check. You know, We have to check them. And the thing is like – the stuff I mentioned about how to understand and how to like spot cognitive dissonance, you know, the laughing out of nowhere when you're being serious or, you know, the avoidance of all this stuff. This is when we start to understand, you know, the gears are moving and all this stuff is changing. And now you have, you know, the basis or the toolbox to kind of, you know, get this and get where this is coming from. So like everything on this show. Like everything I've been talking about the last, you know, six months or nine months, whatever. Um, everything I've talked about throughout the show has taught me that, you know, all the stuff I wanted to focus on, I've been able to focus on. And with your guys' listening and your guys' helping me, you know, and the way you're helping me as as listeners is you are providing a uh, – you're providing an ear for me to – get my opinions, get my thoughts out. But, you know, as well, I hear from a lot of people and they tell me how they feel about what I have to say. I get some criticism. I get some, um, you know, understanding. And I I am able to better integrate myself through this experience. So, I, again, I, I want to just say before we uh, head off, thank you for listening uh, to the show and thank you for being a, a listener. Um, but primarily, I think we should look at why cognitive dissonance why it's so important, right? And I think, you know, this is another episode that will help you guys, the listeners out in your everyday life versus just an episode on, you know, politics, economics or philosophy or whatever. This is an episode I think that you can better integrate and better use on an everyday basis. So um, again, my recommendations, check out um, Theory of Cognitive Dissonance, um, by Leon uh, – let me just make sure his, uh, his name is correct. <laughs> yeah, so Leon Festinger, Festinger's uh, 1957 book, um, Theory of Cognitive Dissonance. Check that out. And as well, check out uh, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. I think those two things will help us understand ourselves better than we pretend to. And again, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. 